Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On February 16th, eight storytellers shared their stories with our audience for our virtual slam. The theme for our February Story Slam was embarrassing moments. We heard stories about wardrobe malfunctions, the proverbial foot in the mouth, and learning the hard way through humbling mistakes. In the end, our winner was Tony Crocomo with his story about the time he assisted his wife when her car broke down. Uh, this May, Christine and I will have been married for 50 years. Now, yeah, I know, it's a long time. Now, a half a century of marriage offers a lot of opportunities for embarrassing moments. And because Christine tends to be cautious and careful, and I not so much, most of the really disastrous embarrassing moments were instigated by me. For example, about 15 years ago, I'm at work at York and I get a phone call from Chris and she tells me that her car has died in the parking lot of her workplace in Lancaster. And she's waiting for a AAA tow truck to arrive to uh, tow her. So I said, well, I'll come down. And I leave work and I drive, drive to her in Lancaster. And I get there a few minutes after the tow truck, op- uh, tow truck operator. And he's a nice guy. And he says, you know, you don't really need a tow. The battery's strong enough. I can get you started. And you can drive the car and find out why it cut out. Uh, you can drive the car to, uh, to the garage yourself. He said, okay, that'll save us some money. That'd be good. And that's what we did. He started the car, stayed a while, make sure it was running okay. It was. Uh, then he left. And uh, Chris pulled out of the parking lot, and I followed her. And about 100 yards down the road, I was behind her when her car died again, two or three car lengths short of a busy intersection in downtown Lancaster. Well, some bystanders helped me push Chris's car to the curb, to the right there. And I pulled in my car right behind her. But we weren't in a parking area. We were actually blocking the right-hand turning lane for that intersection. And I thought it would be, oh, so much better, so much better if I, with my smaller four-cylinder Corolla, push Chris's larger six-cylinder Camry through the intersection. Onto the other side, we'd be out of the way. See how that nice and easy through the intersection. Chris did not like this idea, and uh, I'm I, embarrassed to admit I got a bit huffy about it. I am husband. Hear me roar! And we decided we were going to do this. Well, I decided we were going to do this. So Chris got in her car. I got in my car. She put her car in neutral, released the brake, and rolled back toward me. Uh, Did I I mention we were going to go uphill through the intersection? Our bumpers met, put my car in first gear, stepped on the gas, released the clutch, and the engine engine roared. It really did roar, but we didn't move. We weren't moving. So I I gave it some more gas, and the the engine was even louder and roaring louder and louder and louder. And finally I just floored it. And the engine was screaming and the car was shaking and we were about to move. I know we were just about to move. And then there was a noise. It was a, it was a loud noise. 
was a very loud noise and a bad noise. It was the kind of very loud and bad noise that as soon as you heard it, you knew something really important and incredibly expensive as broken. So I got out of the car and I was careful to step around the puddles of oil that were leaking out of the engine compartment and, and avoiding the, the smoking hot shards of metal that were now in the pavement. And Chris stepped out of her car and she looked at me and she said, are you okay? Not a richly deserved, I told you so. No recrimination at all. No, what the hell have you done? Nothing like that. Despite that incredible mess I had made, her first concern was, are you all right? And it occurred to me, it immediately occurred to me that this is what love looks like. Now, as a guy, uh, and, and I think a lot of guys might be like this, uh, we tend to think that to express our love, to prove our love, we have to do something heroic. You know, I would die to protect my wife, my family, my loved ones. And that is, that's a, that is a fine and noble sentiment. However, statistically speaking, I am not going to have a lot of opportunities to die in order to prove my love to Chris. And that's, that's a good thing. However, tomorrow, there'll be garbage to take out. And there'll be dishes to wash and socks to pick up. And it's... It's through these little things that we do for each other every day that we prove our love for each other. So my advice to all you guys, you want to prove your love? Don't say you're going to die for love. Take out the garbage. Thank you. Tony on the spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up, we have Steph Holmes, who shared about a gift she received from her would-be mother-in-law and the lessons she was able to glean from it. There I was standing in our living room uh, with my then-boyfriend and his parents. His mom and dad had just dropped by uh, because his mom said she had a gift for me. Though that was a surprise, there was no special occasion. It also wasn't a surprise. She undoubtedly, her love language undoubtedly was uh, gift-giving. So... In front of expectant eyes, I reached down into this bag and I was completely stunned by what I found. My brain even needed a few moments to be able to understand what it was I was looking at. I pulled out a huge push-up bra. <laughs> I know that my jaw had to be just hanging down in horror and I could feel the shame start to creep up the sides of my face like it does in bright angry red flashes. But looking at her face, I realized that this oblivious woman thought that she was helping me with a problem that I had. What she had actually done was just open up an old wound. And this one embarrassing moment had the power to throw me back into the body of the 14-year-old girl that I used to be. Uh, at 14, I remember walking into the gym on the first week of seventh grade where the nurse took our annual measurements. My height, five foot two and my weight, 110 pounds. Today, I come in at a whopping five foot two and 110 pounds. Though, if I'm gonna be honest about that, 11 months of quarantine have probably added to that second number quite a bit, but basically I've been in the same body since I was a girl. 
And that seemed like much more of a problem back then when all of the other girls were evolving to have curves. They were going bra shopping with their moms, wearing makeup to school and getting attention from boys. Compared to all of those pageant queens, I felt like such an ugly duckling waiting to grow up. And it was just because I had a body that was different than most. The only attention I did get from boys was from our class bully who thought it was hilarious to pretend to hit on the ugliest girls in class and I was on his list. He would come and find me while I was eating lunch alone and try his best to sit in my lap while I pushed him away. And everyone around us just howled with laughter. He thought it was hilarious and I thought it was humiliating. I felt so uncomfortable and so supremely ugly in my body, my body that was just different than most. And that did take a long time for me to get past, to realize that not only was that inaccurate, but it also wasn't even important enough to be worth my time. It's just not an important thing to me. But here I am, a grown adult, in front of my future mother-in-law, after she had rudely pointed out a part of my body and declared it a fixable flaw. My anger at how she had embarrassed me in front of the guys in my life made me want to lash back out at her and say something nasty like, you know, I can't fool your son at this point, right? But I know that her old world Catholic heart might have broken at that and that's not what I wanted. And I also knew that just like having a direct conversation with this human being wasn't going to be helpful, that being nasty about it also wasn't going to help either of us. So I did what you sometimes do with almost mother-in-laws, and I shut my mouth, gritted my teeth, and redirected the conversation. So a couple of months later, I was packing for their family's annual beach trip. And I'm going to tell you in detail what I did next. In a bikini, the fabric that covers your breast is actually made up of a couple of layers of fabric with a thin layer of uh, foam padding in between. The foam padding's job is to keep everything modest looking, looking even if the ocean's a bit nippy. And if, if it's a bathing suit that's built for smaller chests like my own, um, also to add some oomph or boobage. So before I zipped up my suitcase, I proceeded to remove all of the foam padding from all of my bathing suits. If I was gonna be stuck with this woman for 12 days, she was gonna be stuck looking at flat-chested A-cup me the entire time. Maybe after 12 days of looking at another woman who's just comfortable being in a body that's different than most, maybe that might change her mindset about things. But more likely than not, it would just give me the chance to annoy the hell out of her by just being myself. A couple of years later, I did end up taking the engagement ring off of my finger and decided not to marry into her family. But reflecting on this story and knowing that there are about a dozen other similar stories all about the tension between uh, this woman and me, I can only assume that she was just about as happy about that decision as I was. Thank you so much for listening to my story. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Rita Whitney. Rita shared her story of a mural project that taught her a lot about working and building trust in community. So in the summer of 2017, um, I knew, I really thought I knew what it meant to be a white person. I had it all figured out. I 
for lack of a better word, was I was so woke. I just, I knew what I was doing. Um, I knew my power and privilege. I had this great understanding. And um, I was seven months pregnant with my daughter at that point. And I got this great opportunity to um, facilitate the installation of a mural um, in Parkway Housing neighborhood in York. I had this great opportunity um, and I had seen other people install murals. I had witnessed other mural projects and um, with people that didn't have, they didn't go and um, like talk to the communities or get feedback or input about what the mural should be. And I really hated that. And I was like, I'm going to do this right. So I had this opportunity and I was going to do it right. I was going to talk to community leaders and I was going to um, <clears throat> circulate uh, a survey in English and Spanish to the neighborhood so I could get feedback from the community. I was going to hire a Latino artist um, because it was a very Spanish speaking neighborhood um, so that he could talk in Spanish to the neighbors while he was creating the mural, the, the whole thing. I was, I was going to nail it. Right. And um, what ended up actually happening was I, um, I hired a Uruguayan artist to paint a portrait of a Guatemalan woman in a neighborhood that was predominantly Puerto Rican and black. And if you don't immediately know a hundred things wrong with that sentence, then you're probably right where I was in the summer of 2017. Um, but this story isn't actually about <laughs> my ignorance of Latino culture. In fact, it's uh, about something specific that happened during the week of that installation um, that I haven't really talked about much because uh, it was such a put my foot in the mouth kind of come to Jesus moment. Um, and I haven't really had to reconcile it with it too much until now. Um, so we had hired this great artist. He was working on the mural. It was about a week long installation. And while he was working on the mural, he would overnight leave his paint cans up on the scaffolding that we had rented because it was a very large uh, full-size mural. And I get a call from him in the middle of the week after he'd been working on it uh, about how some kids had grabbed one of the paint cans and um, thrown an entire gallon of paint all over the side of a, a van and the ground that was parked behind, uh, right behind where the mural was. And the, uh, the artist Pablo was standing with the owner of the van who wanted to talk to me. <laughs> and by talk, I mean um, scream at and threaten, which is only about the second time in my life that that had ever really happened at that point. Um, and so I get on the phone with this guy uh, because what else am I going to do? I'm responsible um, for the whole thing, uh, the whole project. And he starts telling me about OSHA standards, which I know absolutely nothing about, um, and like proper storage and all of these things. And he's a painter by trade. He's a house painter. So he knows way more about this stuff than I ever would have. Um, I have, you know, no idea what to do. I try to just listen and be calm and, and all of that. And finally, I get back on the phone with Pablo and we're saying, okay, what do we do? And my immediately gut reaction is like, oh, well, we call the police. And Pablo says, no, no, don't call the police. And I was like, 
probably this is like vandalism and destruction of property. Like, absolutely, we have to call the police. And he was just like, no, 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 don't, please don't call the police, Rita, please don't call the police. And I was shocked by that because it never would have occurred to me to not just call the police. So um, we didn't, I trusted uh, my, my new friend, my friend, the artist Pablo. Um, and I said, well, what do we do? And he says, well, let's just go and help the guy clean up and see what happens. I was like, okay, we'll try it. Call up my husband. We go down there. Um, this guy is irate. I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I didn't feel like unsafe in any way, you know, because I had, there were plenty of people around. Um, but I, it was definitely kind of shocking and um, so he's, uh, turns out he doesn't even own the van. It's his boss's van that he just um, uses for work. Um, he only rents the property that he lives in. He's worried about the, um, the ground being thrown up with paint because his, he's afraid his landlord is going to give him shit about um, the ground being messed up. So um, have I mentioned I'm seven months pregnant at this point? So we are, um, my husband and I and Pablo get to work cleaning up the paint scraping it off the van we spend probably several hours um paint thinner he's got all the tools the guy right because he's a painter and over the course of this happening he really starts to open up he starts to really calm down um at first it's just um the three of us working and then he starts helping scrape the paint he starts talking to us um you know fixing the yard all of that we get totally done um, by the end of it, he is thanking us for showing up. He's shaking our hands. Um, and, you know, I'm telling this story because when I think about that situation now, at the time I thought I knew what to do and I was very strong headed and like sure of myself. And now looking back, I can't be more grateful that I was able to kind of take my foot out of my mouth and listen and create community rather than, um, you know, what call the police. And looking back, it's like, I can see that how the outcome could have potentially gone much, much differently from this point. And that's one of the largest lessons that I have ever learned um, in, my, in my job so far. Thank you. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Updates on our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. Please also follow us on Twitter, as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to our 2021 sponsor, KBG Injury Law, whose generous support is making this season possible. We hope to see you virtually or on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com.